Turn to Acts chapter 12, please. Acts chapter 12. Tonight's study will be kind of like a chapter study, I guess. Uh, I want to thank Mark for his prayer on my behalf, and I want to thank Mark Hayes for the uh, opportunity to speak. You know, it was Mark that gave me my first uh, tasked chapter study, and uh, halfway through building that, I thought, oh, I hate this. And I've really grown to really actually love it. it when, when you force yourself to stay in between a couple of parameters, you find yourself able to dig for things that you don't think are there, and, and it, it really enables you to learn uh, a lot more. Acts chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because it saw, he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. The Herod that is spoken of in this passage is Herod Agrippa I. The grandson of Herod the Great, who ruled in the days of Jesus' birth that we can read about in Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 16, Herod Agrippa I was also the nephew of Herod Antipas, who had a role in the trial of Jesus that we can read about in Luke 23, 7-12. The scriptures refer to all three of these people as Herod, so I thought it would help to specify who exactly we're talking about here. So Herod Agrippa I was, in this passage, Like many people in power do sometimes, he was pandering to his subjects. Even leaders like kings and dictators and others that have forms of absolute power, uh, they can recognize that happy subjects can make ruling easier. Only the most extreme leaders or those that are insane lead by fear alone. Every word and sentence in the Bible is there for a reason a lot of times for multiple reasons. If you will notice, it says that these were the days of unleavened bread. Acts 12 takes place 10 to 15 years after Jesus was crucified. The church was moderately well established at this point. Lots of doctrinal issues had been worked out, and it stands to reason that by this time, even some Jewish-born Christians had stopped adhering to Jewish customs as law, at least. So Jewish holidays would have been a time where the contention between Mosaical Jews and Jewish Christians was greater than your average Tuesday. Herod Agrippa saw this as an opportunity to persecute Christians in order to garnish favor from the Jews. His first noteworthy achievement was the killing of James, and when he saw that his pandering to the Jews was working, that's when he imprisoned Peter. Evidently, when he killed James, it was prior to any noteworthy holy days. However, this was not the case with Peter. Herod decided to imprison him until it was more opportune to kill him. 
He either wanted to show how conservatively he observed the Passover, or he wanted to wait till the pilgrim crowds went home fearing a riot, or he wanted to wait until he had the full attention of the Jewish population. Whatever his reason was, he wanted to get the most out of Peter's death. Now, you may remember back in Acts 5, Peter had been in prison before, and an angel sprung him out. However, Herod wouldn't consider his prior escape to be an act of God. Instead, it would have just been the works of, of man to him. So he has 16 soldiers in charge of Peter. That was not normal. Two or four soldiers would have been more customary, so Herod clearly did not want to take any chances with this political power play. Let's start reading again in verse 5. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone, shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on his side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did, and he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him, and did not know if what, he, what was done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and the second guard posts, they came to the iron gate which leads to the city, which opened them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. So again, I want to point out how much of a security detail Herod has on Peter. Even while he's sleeping deep within the prison, he has a guard on either side of him. He was chained to the wall, and he was possibly chained to the soldiers. Outside of divine intervention, the prison alone would have been more than sufficient in holding a mere man. In fact, while Peter is being freed, they pass two guard posts, and the final exit is this iron gate. The root words and definitions for this gate imply that it was relatively large. I heard a sermon from another congregation once where he said that this gate could have possibly required as many as 20 men to open. Although I could not find any source material myself to verify that, at any rate, I'm sure Herod was confident that he had all of his bases covered. So I want us to notice something. The church is offering constant prayer for Peter. In the Greek, this word constant means without ceasing, it means fervently, earnestly. The Greek root word, ektino, means something like a muscle stretched to its limit. I want you to picture this. Late into the night that all of us here are praying fervently, without ceasing, earnestly, and stretched to our absolute limit for Ian's well-being. Meanwhile, he's having a nap. I guess I'd want Ian to take things a little bit more seriously, right? But the reality is, Peter is an old hand at this by this point. He has seen the miraculous, he has done the miraculous, he has been in prison before, he has been beaten, and he has seen brothers in Christ killed. Well, I might as well get some sleep. I think that says a lot about Peter's faith and priorities. He might die soon, and he isn't going to lose any sleep about it. I tell you that I've lost sleep about so much less, and it's shameful to me that I'm susceptible, that susceptible to life's worries. 
Let's pick back up in verse 11. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying, and Peter knocked at the door of the gate. A girl named Rhoda came to answer, and she recognized Peter's voice. Because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, You are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, It's his angel. Now Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door, they saw him and were astonished, but motioned to him with his hand to keep silent. He declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison, and he said, Go tell these things to James and the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Do you notice how that they were praying for Peter and then they did not believe that Peter was at the door? They didn't believe that their prayers had been answered. They're sitting there praying nonstop, it would seem, for Peter. Late into the night, it would seem. Peter was asleep, as we mentioned, and they were still awake praying. God answers their prayers and Peter is at the door knocking and they tell Rhoda that she is beside herself. You're crazy, they tell her. Then they say it's his angel. Many historians say that Jews had a common belief that we all have a guardian angel and he typically will look like you and talk like you. Whether that is superstition or fact, wouldn't it just seem more reasonable to just believe that it was Peter at the door and that their long, fervent prayers had been answered? You know, I mentioned in a sermon once that maybe the good in my life is someone else's answered prayers. Someone else is praying for me. I don't always have the best prayer life. I don't always have the most confidence in in my prayers and what I'm praying for or whether certain things are worth praying for or not. Oftentimes, I will meditate on my life and realize that God has taken very good care of me. I have so many blessings, both spiritual and physical, so many things that I take for granted. So many things that have gone so bad so easily that didn't. I often feel ashamed that I go so long without mentioning a specific thanks for the specific things to God in prayer. Or I see examples in my life where if I would just really pay attention, God has had a hand in the way things have worked out for me. And I'm not talking about a prosperity doctrine. I'm I'm talking about my salvation my marriage, my children, my health, the health of those around me. It's not my intention to give supernatural, mystical testimonies up here of the things that God has done for me. I just want to recognize for a moment how important prayer really is. Mark 11 and 24, Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you will receive them and you will have them. Well, evidently someone somewhere, maybe here tonight, is praying for me with some next-level faith in their life. Because about two-thirds of the time, my prayers feel weak. I mean, Jesus says, pray, believe, and you will have it. There's nothing vague about it. Have faith, pray. This account of Peter being sprung from prison again shows us how we need to be diligent in our prayers and the exercise of our faith. You have Peter... Mary and Mark in this account, and no telling who else is in this house praying for Peter. 
These are some of the big wigs of the New Testament who have seen miracles. Many of them have performed miracles themselves in the name of Jesus. Yet we see that at least part of them were lacking faith in their prayers. Were they praying for Peter for hours? Maybe a whole day? It was part of the, ni- part of the night at least. Yet when their prayers were answered, it was somehow easier to believe in what may have just been a superstition about angels or that Rhoda was crazy. We need to ensure that we have the faith that God hears our prayers. If you're going to take the time to sit down and pray and you don't have the faith that he hears you, then stop. Don't waste your breath. Open your Bible and study God's word until you do have faith enough to be heard. This account in Acts really got me thinking about the different aspects of our prayer habits. When I read this account of an answered prayer, I may be reading in between the lines, but it seems to me that at least part of the people involved did not really expect their prayers to be answered. So I want to talk for a moment about when our prayers are not answered. The first issue would be with the question, why don't prayers get answered? The question shouldn't be why prayers don't get answered. The question should be why isn't the answer to my prayer yes? Because that's what we have to realize. A prayer that's unanswered could just be a prayer that the answer was no. Galatians, uh, Galatians 3, 26 and 27, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you that were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. In several places, the scriptures refer to us that have been baptized as the children of God. Those of us that have or have had children understand that a child will ask for almost anything. And many times you have to tell them no. Have you ever tried to explain to a small child why the answer is no? Depending on the age and the maturity level, generally the child just has to deal with your answer. They don't understand the wisdom and experience that you have as a parent when it comes to food, safety, and their general well-being. I think of times that I've sat down with my kids and really tried to explain the reasons why I say no to something, and more often than not, I think the longer I talk, the less they understand. At, at the end of the day, what, all that really matters is that they submit to my decision until they reach the age that they can make the right decisions themselves. We have to remember that we are all the children of God. Even the eldest of us here here in this room are still called children. We need to be willing to see and understand that the things that we may be asking for in prayer may be things we don't need either, even things that maybe seem serious to us. Look at how much wisdom you have as a parent. You know that too much ice cream is going to give you a stomachache. You know that the wall socket will electrocute you, and you know that the cars on the highway will run you over. Your children just have to deal with you telling them no until they can reach the age and develop mature reasoning of their own. Maybe that's why we don't hear the thundering voice of God tell us no after a prayer. We would probably just try to reason and explain our perspective and ramble on like the children we are trying to get what we want. If you can plainly see how far a parent exceeds a child in wisdom and experience, you can't even begin to find the words to explain how far God's wisdom exceeds ours. Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 33, 
Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? We most likely can't even comprehend the reasoning and the decision-making process that God may have when the answer to one of our prayers is no. I think it's helpful to actively look at yourself as a child to God. When you think of yourself or look in the mirror, don't think of yourself as an adult that has it all figured out. Think of yourself as a child that really doesn't have the big picture, who really doesn't even have the ability to understand the big picture. Use your understanding of a child's limitations in order to reconcile in your heart when the answer to a prayer is no. Why else do we feel that our prayers go unanswered? James 4, verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. This is kind of like the extra ice cream your child's asking for. Many times the things that we pray to God for are no different. Those of us with life experience can plainly see why a child doesn't need that much ice cream. God in his wisdom can plainly see the things that we don't need, although we think we do. Generally, my mind would go to more money. It's a pervasive thought that plagues some of the youngest to some of the eldest. The idea that more money will fix our problems. Proverbs 27 and 20, hell and destruction are never full, so the the eyes of man are never satisfied. Humans, especially Americans, are very consumptive people. Even some of the least motivated people are still driven by their appetite. Just stop and think about how many things that you could really do without and not really change anything very fundamental about our lives. These are very small things. Let's say you had five square foot less in every room in your house. It really doesn't change the functionality of your home at all. Maybe skip a dine-in meal every now and again. Maybe take a few name brands off your clothes and wear something cheaper. Maybe instead of that fourth bowl of ice cream, only eat three. Maybe instead of the fastest internet, get the second fastest. Maybe instead of buying one more family heirloom at Walmart, just be happy with the ones you have. These really are tiny, tiny changes. These are not major life changes, but they can teach us to be more moderate in our thought processes in day-to-day life. But moderation takes constant work to maintain. We don't make all of these choices so we can save the money and buy some other luxury. We make these choices so we can exemplify Philippians 4 and 5 where it says to let your moderation be known unto all men. So I'm just ranting, right? What does this have to do with our prayer life? Well, I don't know many people that can live in a state of financial turmoil and not have it affect your day-to-day life. Maybe you're not living in turmoil. You're just pretty much spending everything you're making. When something breaks or something comes up that you weren't expecting, money is going to consume your thoughts. That affects your spiritual life as well. You can't be a Christian believing in a higher power, believing in a God in heaven, and not at least be tempted to pray for financial relief. 
When the reality is, the majority of the times, we're the ones that create our own financial troubles. The majority of us, at least. I don't want to deal in absolutes, but 1 Timothy 6 and 8 says, And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Anything above that is a luxury. If you have an air-conditioned house, that is a luxury. If you have a car, that is a luxury. Why would we think that God would answer the prayer for more money when what we already have far exceeds what was promised to us? When our expectations of life that is based on our opinions and standard of living begins to dictate our spiritual life, our prayer life, then we are extremely mistaken and misunderstand what the purpose of prayer is. I want to read the surrounding verses in 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out, and having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and to many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. This is a core principle I want us to understand about our prayer life. If what we are praying for contradicts what we have in Scripture, then the answer is going to be no. Like I said, I don't want to deal in absolutes. Perhaps there is a scenario where a prayer about your finances would be answered. However, I am convinced that this scripture has already answered that plainly. God has very little interest in fixing your financial problems. He has no interest in you winning the lottery, getting an inheritance, getting a raise. He has no interest in lowering your bills. All of this isn't because he doesn't care about you. It's because he does care about you. And he's not going to give you a single thing that you don't need, regardless of how much you're convinced that you do need it. When the scriptures plainly state that his providential care consists of food and clothing, God's position has been made clear in scriptures. He's not going to answer your prayers for more money. Have you noticed how on a small child's birthday, they often end the day crying? That's because when you're on top, there's only one way to go, and that's down. And a child has a difficult time being okay with that. We are not any different. We have so much stuff and money in this country. That does not necessitate sin. However, it does make the opportunity for certain types of sin much greater. When was the last time you heard a sermon on gluttony? Gluttony alone. We don't want to hear about that. We don't want any part of that, and we don't want any part of presenting on that either. As a matter of fact, I've got uh, part of a sermon on gluttony built. I will, uh, I'll open it on my computer from time to time, and nah. And uh, I'll exit out of it and go eat some cookies. And I, I say all this because... I need reminders of just how much I have over and beyond, far beyond God's providential care. I believe it's pretty clear in the scriptures that prayers in the subject of materials and finances the majority of the time will fall on deaf ears. So let, let's move on, and I want to speak for a moment about when the answers to our prayers are yes. 
Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 11. This is the account of the ten lepers. Now, it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed, as the speaking of Jesus, he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then he entered a certain village there and met him ten men who were lepers, who stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he said to them, Go show yourselves to the priests. And so it was, as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned with a loud voice and glorified God, and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks, and he was a Samaritan. So Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Arise, go your way, your faith has made you well. These lepers saw Jesus in the flesh, asked him directly to be healed, and quite literally 90% of them did not thank him. Are we the same? We ask for things of God in prayer and fail to thank him? Obviously some more than others, but humans as a whole can be quite pessimistic. We may have nine things going the way we would want in our lives, but we will tend to focus on the one thing that isn't. We need to be diligent to sit down and thank God for our answered prayers, for the blessings we do have, not out of a sense of duty. We need to develop a somber and humble attitude on the subject. Be willing to thank God for answered prayers in a way that puts all the glory on Him while removing any thought that you are independent or that you have provided anything for yourself. One of my favorite things to do in an ice storm is go pull people out of ditches. I remember one time I pulled a uh, middle-aged lady in a small dilapidated car out of some snow. I didn't ask if she needed help. I just pulled up behind her, hooked up a chain, told her to throw it in neutral, and yanked her out. Generally, people in that situation are very thankful. Sometimes they'll offer to pay. This time was different, though. When When I got her out of her car where she was sitting back on the road. Uh, She came up to me as I was putting my chain away and she looked terrified. And and I I thought she was gonna start crying, almost like out of a fear of me, as she told me that she had nothing at all and no way to pay me. I kept telling her over and over again, I didn't want any money. Uh, I'm out here in my four wheel drive, just getting sideways on purpose, having fun. And this lady was actually kind of weirding me out. She was very thankful, but she couldn't seem to shake this fear that she had of me. I made sure she was good to go, and I got out of there before she had a stroke or something. And as I was driving down the road, it occurred to me that this this lady had never had someone do something for her without them expecting something in return. What a sad life this lady had to be living. It was like she expected to be extorted or something. This lady was maybe 45 years old, and she evidently was not used to anyone doing anything for her just for the sake of doing something good. As I was thinking about this one day, I thought of another time I pulled a guy out of the mud, and when I got him out, he just kind of rambled on about he was generally a more capable driver than that, and he probably would have got himself out without me, and then he tried to hand me a wad of $1 bills, and... I had just barely finished telling him that I didn't want his money, and he stuffed it in his pocket as quick as he could. And I was thinking about these two scenarios, and it occurred to me that the more we have, the less thankful we become. 
As we are thanking God in our prayers, we should always try to recognize the helpless state we're in without God. Maintain a humble and reverent attitude and be willing to admit the most basic and core functions of life are worth the most humble and of thanks that we can offer. Instead of the thankfulness of that man that was stuck in the mud, where it's obligatory because of the faith that he still had in himself and his own abilities. <clears throat> There's another aspect of prayer that I, I struggled with for a long time, and that was thanking God for things maybe he didn't do. If I pray for someone who was sick to get better, and they get better, well, maybe they were going to get better anyway. I mean, I don't want to say God did something he didn't, but I also want to thank him for the things he did do. But how do I know the difference? I grappled with this for way longer than I should have, and the answer to that thought process is really relatively simple. James chapter 1 and verse 17, every good gift and perfect and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father. If it's good, it's from God. It's kind of funny that I, I struggled with that for as long as I did. Whether it's miraculous and God heals someone out of a manner of divine intervention, or someone just got better because of the immune system he created as part of his providential care, did they get better? Yes. Was it good? Then it was from God. And we should never waffle on whether or not we should give God the thanks and the glory for something good. You know, like I said in the beginning I, about this being a chapter study, I, I kind of waffled back and forth on that format. It, it was going to be a sermon on prayer, then I intended for it to just be a chapter study, then it just became being mostly about prayer anyway. So I'm just going to do what I want. Uh, Y'all are a captive audience anyway. So let's pick back up in verse 18 of Acts chapter 12. <clears throat> then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. I have this train of thought every now and again, I guess you would call it the unimportant people of the Bible. And there's a bunch of them too. The soldiers that were killed by Herod, or some of them, think of the children and the servants of Job that died in the story of Job's trials. Think of the men that Nebuchadnezzar used to throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace that were slain by the fervent heat. All of these people are almost objectified. They were objects that accomplished a purpose in these stories that have been preserved for our reading and learning. The children of Job are about as noteworthy as the house they were in. Nebuchadnezzar's men are about as noteworthy as the fiery furnace. These soldiers of Herod are about as noteworthy as the keys to the shackles on Peter's hands. These are some of the key stories in the Bible. It's so profound to me how close they were to God's servants how close of proximity to some of the guys that could lead them to God, but yet they were just intersecting lines, never to meet again. While these key characters were on a path of servitude to God, these other people didn't even intersect long enough for us to catch their actual names. 
These are people that had hopes, dreams, ambition, lives, families, feelings, people that loved them. With barely a mention in the scriptures, they ended. You think God loved these people any less? John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you think the children of Job did not have the opportunity to live in servitude to God? You better believe they did. Do you think the soldiers of Nebuchadnezzar could have chosen to stand with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace? I believe they could have. Do you think that Herod's soldiers had an opportunity to hear the word of God from Peter? They were chained to him for Pete's sake, pun intended. Don't be like these people who I'm calling the unimportant people in the Bible. Don't just be a side note in the account of someone else that did choose to serve God. This isn't about having a glorious account written about you. This is about ensuring that your name, at the very least, is written in the book of life we read about in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 15. Let's go ahead and wrap this chapter up by reading the final verses, starting back in the middle of verse 19. And he, speaking of Herod, went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's personal aid, their friend, they asked for peace, because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave oration to them. And the people kept shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. As I read this account of Herod Agrippa, both in the scriptures and in secular historical accounts, he just makes me cringe. The guy just strikes me as a manipulative, blaspheming man that was really consumed by pride. We have discussed how he was pandering to the Jews, which is nothing more than a political move. In fact, I've read in some sources that at one point he read from Deuteronomy 17 and verse 15 in a public assembly and began to cry openly. It says, after becoming king of Judea as Agrippa I, while carrying out the commandment to read the book of Deuteronomy in public, Agrippa I broke down in tears when he reached the passage in the text, you may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Tainted by the lineage from Herod, Agrippa had doubts that he had the Jewish pedigree to be king of Judea. But the Jewish crowds assembled for the reading said to the king, do not worry, Agrippa, you are our brother, you are our brother, you are our brother. The man had sort of a dual citizenship deal going on. He had Jewish blood in his lineage, but he was heavily involved in Roman politics. He was an acquaintance or a friend of at least two Roman emperors and even played crucial roles in internal Roman politics, including a leading role in Rome in the accession of Claudius Caesar to the head of the empire. <coughs> Depending on who was around him, determined as to whether he was Roman or Jewish. But his hypocrisy was not limited to that. See, Tyre and Sidon were neither Roman or Jewish. So in this audience, 
he decided he was content to be a god. To the Jews, he was a pious, tear-jerked man's man of the Jews. To the Romans, he was a heavily involved politician. To these people of Tyre and Sidon, hey, why not? I'll be a god. The Bible says he was arrayed in royal apparel. Josephus says he covered himself in silver robes and gowns, which was apparently a little, even a little excessive of any leader at the time. The scriptures imply that all Herod had to do was say, no, no, I'm just a man, but he didn't. He was content to be praised as something more than a man, and God decided enough was enough. Herod was coming to his end. I want to finish this chapter and link this account of Herod back to our prayer habits. Although this dramatic ending of Herod's life is not presented in a way that aligns with our traditional thinking of prayer, it's still communication. The scriptures speak in many places about being double-minded, hypocritical, and having corrupt communication. James chapter 3 and verse 10 says, Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. I don't want to get in the weeds by, by talking about classifications of sin or what's worse or not in God's eyes, but the fact that God struck him to die in the way that he did, it's pretty clear to me how God feels about hypocritical communication. Revelation 3 and 15 says, I know your works that they are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. <clears throat> if you're a Christian here today, be a Christian. Don't be a Roman to the Romans. Don't be a Jew to the Jews. Don't be a God to the Gentiles, all while being a humble Christian to God in your prayers. I have not spoken about the first principles this evening. However, as we close, I would entreat anyone and everyone in the audience that feels that their life is open-ended to please come forward. If you need to find somebody to study the scriptures with, if you need the prayers of the church, or if you need baptism, please come forward as we stand and sing.